Father, we again are grateful for the opportunity to share together this morning uh, on an important topic of mission and particularly in relation to the Muslim world. We ask for your presence with us this morning. May we understand what is most important for we as your last day people. We thank you in your name. Yesterday was a uh, day of contrasts. Judy and I went into Pasadena and we spent the day listening to Dr. Dudley Woodbury from Fuller, who is one of the preeminent uh, Christian Islamicists, um, a mentor of mine as well as many, many others. And we were fellowshipping with a group of people who are all concerned about how do we communicate the gospel to the Muslim world. That was the focus of the whole day. Um, Dudley is at the center of that, and uh, a number of other people there who are actively involved. I... don't have any count, but I'm, I'm, I'm estimating that of those in the room yesterday, um, probably represented, I mean, I know they represented thousands of Muslims who, who are now believers in Jesus as a result of their work and their ministry. Um, the Adventist ministry that we have that has thousands of believers is just one part of that, but others in that room from other faith traditions, other Christian traditions. That was refreshing. But many of you got this in your mail. And I can't think of a bigger contrast of Islam and Christianity in the last as as the last big conflict. Islam against Christianity or vice versa. And uh, I couldn't muster the courage to go myself last night. My wife is braver than I am, and she went. And yes, it was... uh, It was uh, somewhat Christ-centered, I think, and salvation-centered. But very much as you look at the brochure... It's the role of Islam in the coming conflict, uh, how God says there will be three major conflicts between Islam and Christianity. Two have occurred, and we are in the beginning of the third one. Very much a historicist, events-oriented approach to prophecy, which feeds into the Adventist penchant to for sensationalism about end-time events, in, in my perspective. Obviously, that's a judgmental statement, I realize, but I put it out there for my own opinion about these things. Whereas the entire day with other Christian groups was spent, how do we really build relationships? What can we, how can we, 
take the gospel message in a way into the Muslim community that builds a sustainable ministry. That was the focus of the all day. And then I, I wished somehow our Adventist focus could be in that arena rather than in oh who's who's the uh, who's the antichrist who's you know we've got to identify these players at the end of time uh, and so forth nothing in this talks about are Muslims savable I remember when I when I was first asked to take over the Muslim Center in 1995, the Center for Muslim Relations for the General Conference. Mike Ryan, the Vice President of the General Conference, said this to me. He said, "If you can simply convince our people that Muslims can be saved, you will have achieved a great victory." Now. A significant statement in some ways as to what we ought to focus on, yes, but also a sad statement that that's sort of the attitude uh, too much within Adventist circles. So uh, I couldn't help making a few comments on this because this is a current series going on in our in our area here, and uh, whether I will speak with him uh, personally or not, I don't know if I'll have that opportunity. But uh, anyway. Well, let's let's pick up where we left off last week. Just a bit of review. We do we looked at a diagram, something like this, of God's story, my story, combining with the community story, uh, leading to a new story for for both of us. This is quite a bit different than mission as cargo that we talked about, and mission as even communication we talked about. Another way of looking at this that uh, some of us have appreciated is there's two ways of, of looking at a group or a set. One is called bounded set. You can define a group, Seventh-day Adventist Church or any group, by defining clearly your boundary. And by and large, this is the way we have approached mission. You are a Seventh-day Adventist if, and we have defined the boundary quite carefully, um, a, an agreement to a set of propositions, um, a set of beliefs, now, I have no particular argument with these particular set of beliefs. Uh, what I'm suggesting is how we approach mission. In the bounded set thinking, if you agree to the boundary, the 28 fundamentals, then you are inside. If not, you are outside. Notice that this way of approach only focuses on position. Does not say anything about what direction you're going. It simply says you have agreed to a set of beliefs to the boundary. You are inside. You are one of us. But there's another way of looking at groups 
which is called centered sets. And here the group is defined by a certain center. So you define a center. We could say that's Christ, that's Jesus, or we could say that's kingdom, principles of the kingdom. And Dorothea talked to us a few weeks ago about the principles of the kingdom. And you define those who are members of this group not by so much their position, but by their direction of movement in relation to the center. So you may have something, so we've defined the center, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few moments. You define the center, and you may have a person here who is going in this direction. You may have a person out here who in many ways we consider somewhat distant from the, what we have defined as the center, but may be moving towards the center. And so you define a group like that, uh, you know, in various positions. There's one going away, there's one going in. And so those who are directed towards the center would be members of the group. Muslims, by and large, we would say are somewhat distant from what we have defined as a biblical center. That would be the general attitude, I would say. But you may find a person within Islam or any other group who is moving towards the center may at first appear to be quite distant. And those are people that we want to find, identify. And so this way of thinking is more centered set thinking. The cargo model that we talked about last week is bounded set thinking. You know, we have a product here that we're taking and over there. They don't know anything about it. So it's an us-them mentality. So we want to get them to agree to this way of thinking and believing and allegiance. We define, define the boundary, define the boundary, and, and uh, if you agree, you're in. I remember using this approach in Libya, and uh, we had a Libyan young lady. She was a medical student in Italy. Uh, she uh, came to the hospital, to our Adventist hospital in Benghazi, uh, during her vacation times to spend a little time with our physicians. During that, uh, one of those episodes expressed an interest in becoming a Christian, and so I'm the pastor. So I took my set of Bible studies that I had developed uh, from my experience uh, here in North America, and we went through them. So at the end, we had covered the boundary, points of the boundary. She agreed to all of them. So what's the next step? Baptism. So she can come inside now. I didn't know about this way of thinking or the story uh, transformation model. 
And so what were we to do? We had agreed with the government we wouldn't baptize anyone. That's how we got to the hospital in Benghazi. So now what do we do? I flew up to Bologna, and on a Friday night in a little Adventist church in Italy, we baptized her. Went to church the next Sabbath, the next morning, with her. She was seen in church one more Sabbath. We've not had contact with her since. That was 1968. Somewhere in my files I have her church letter that the pastor mailed to me. We tried to make contact with her when we passed through Italy on way, ways to either vacation or furlough. We contacted by phone one time, um, but we're not able to meet with her. I don't know where she is today. <coughs> Bounded set thinking. Didn't understand this approach. Or this. Perhaps another little example of... <coughs> this would be I was I, I spoke at a an Islamic conference uh, or an Islamic center in London a number of years ago I was asked to present uh, and then a Muslim sheikh uh, gave a presentation also and uh, I the, the topic that we were asked to, to talk about was God's plan for restoring peace and justice well, I gave him the whole story of the cosmic conflict from beginning to end. Interesting, the sheikh in his opening remarks, he said, you know, I do find certain elements of Christianity very attractive. He said the fact that God himself would, would offer himself uh, is attractive. But he said, of course, we are Muslim." And we don't believe that Christ died and, and, and so forth. And went on to explain the Muslim understanding. During the question and answer period, um, a, there were many Muslims in the audience, of course. It was a Muslim center, a Shiite center, actually. And uh, a question was raised by one of the Muslims in the audience. Do Christians believe that Muslims can be saved? you're in a Muslim center and you're asked that question can you give me some advice how would you answer huh yes I have my own story um, as a lawyer I've been exposed to a lot of different things and um, in my law school career I externed for Judge Goldberg and I learned a lot of wisdom one of the things that he shared with me was that his daughter was dating a young Baptist young man and the thing that uh, Judge Goldberg had a problem with was that his daughter was told that there was no way that he could be saved unless he became Christian and he goes I just don't understand that how can you say that my grandfather, who was a very righteous man, and loved God with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind, and loved his neighbor as his self, and was very righteous, cannot be saved? And I think that I, I was reading over your handout here, 
and I recognize a lot of this stuff. And, and here we are, we're judging. We're the ones that are saying, if you're outside, you're lost. If you're inside, you are saved. We're not God. And when you look at the Gospel Commission, and Jesus tells us to go out and preach the world to these communities, and if they don't receive the message, to turn around, shake the dust off your sandals, and leave. We're not supposed to conquer. We're not supposed to... It's not our job to save people. So in response to your question, after many years of looking back, I would say, I'm not God. I don't make the decision as to who's in his kingdom or who's not. And uh, looking back on just my study of Job within the past few months, and looking at the question... In Job, God says, I am creator. Recognize that I'm creator. It's as simple as recognize as I am the creator. And there's a lot of people in this world that don't recognize God as creator. And I think the Muslims recognize God as creator. Um, the Jews recognize God as creator. I think a lot of other people recognize the creator. And there's a lot of people that don't recognize the creator. I'm thinking God has a very open mind and if there's a way that he can save somebody and somebody's going to be happy in his kingdom, then God's going to see them this way. But for us to answer, yeah, you're saved, or we think you can be saved, or you can't be saved, we can't answer that question because we're not God. Well, it's interesting that your, your conclusion is very similar to what I said at the end response. So uh, the moderator of the of the discussion, our question and answer said to said initially he said, "Well, we're, we're trying to avoid controversial questions <laughs> in this venue," and so I, my associate and I, Oscar Sindel was with me actually, and he'd given a small presentation as well. And we both said to him, "No, no, that's okay. We'll answer. We'll we'll, we'll address the question." So obviously, it's it's sent to me as the senior uh, representative of the biblical message and so the Holy Spirit guides you in these situations and my first my first phrase was exactly what you said what you've said and I said I'm I'm happy that I'm not God because for you as a Muslim to judge anyone as savable or not savable or for me as a Christian to make that judgment would be the biggest shirk and in Islam, shirk is the biggest sin. That is putting yourself in God's place. And I am not God, nor will I assume that role at all. But I went on to say, I said, having said that, and with that understanding, let me say this. I said, you as a Muslim understand God and religious things, and you feel that that's the right way. Those of us from a different faith tradition also feel that what we have learned and what we have studied and what we have struggled with has brought us to a position where we feel we have some understanding of truth. I said, I think when we both get to paradise, notice I said we both get to paradise, um, I said, I think what's going to happen is God or either God himself or someone is going, he's going to appoint Moses or, or uh, 
Abraham or someone to come and sit down with us and say, you know, you thought it was like this. But let me tell you how it really is or really was. Let me tell you the story behind the story. And so I think that there is a quality of, of willingness to learn that is essential for salvation. So that was, that was my response. Again, coming much more from this orientation. Now, in our handout last Sabbath, and, and uh, I'm struggling to move through the material that we had hoped to, to get through, you recall there was a circle. Again, a few weeks ago, uh, we were introduced to the qualities of the kingdom. Dorothea um, led us in that discussion and that consideration. What would you consider the most important qualities of God's kingdom? I mean, Jesus, basically, his focus was the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand, right? It's here, it's among them. That's what his disciples were to say to people. They would go out in mission, and uh, their focus was the kingdom of God. Um, what would you say if you had to list the key qualities of the kingdom remembering some of what uh, we were led in the discussion a few weeks ago or from your own understanding this isn't a serious philosophical uh, question it's simply let's, let's, let's look at what are the important qualities Yes. love, love. Okay. grace grace faith Freedom. What do you mean by faith? Trust beyond oneself. Yeah. You don't mean an organized system of faith. Okay. What did I Freedom. Have? Freedom. Sigrid has helped us with that, hasn't it? What else? Peace. Hmm? Peace. Peace. Humility. What do you mean by humility? Who said? The opposite of pride. Okay. What's the qualities of humility that are most important in this context? Focus. So I think you you really focused on service as, as a key quality. Humility? Yeah. Joy and happiness. Oh really? Service. You mentioned freedom, um, but could we add healing to freedom? Healing. I think, I think the heathen can have all those things. Um, so I think in there, there needs to be a recognition of God as creator. Okay. We're talking about the kingdom of God. So there is some assumption, I suppose, simply from that talking about God. Right, but I'm saying that all those things right there, anybody can have those things. So I, th I think you're right. There, there has to be an underlying understanding that there's, there's recognition of, of God as creator, but I'm saying that okay. those things in their abstract, anybody can have. That leads to some of what we're going to lead to. Being teachable. That's what I would to put in, in under humility, being teachable. Willingness to listen. 
Graham Maxwell used to use that phrase, willingness to listen. Um, so, if these are the qualities of the kingdom, I mean, go to Matthew 5, <coughs> uh, Sermon on the Mount. Hey, doesn't Mrs. White talk about how there's going to be people in heaven who've never heard of the name of God or Jesus? Well, this would go back to to the point he just raised. People are living um, lives that are based on what they have seen in nature or whatever, and they are being loving and having grace and being faithful and all that. And I think they're going to be saved, even though they don't know God or haven't heard his name. I'm not so much interested in in actually coming to a... We could spend several periods on defining really what are the essence, what is the essence, what is the core, what is is central. Um, I have another point uh, really, though, that I'd like to move to with this illustration. So this is the kingdom. Now, that's, that's what we would like to take to, to other people. Jesus said, you know, to his disciples, that was his instructions, take this message of the kingdom. Um, where would you draw the Christian circle? If you drew a second circle representing the Christian world, where would you draw it? On this diagram? the world as it should be or the world as it is Christian world choose the word that's missing from your circle is Jesus uh, salvation through Christ okay in Christ okay we can add those where would you put the Christian circle remember we're talking about mission where would you draw the Christian circle? Very small. Very small. <laughs> <laughs> Where? Inside? Outside? Uh, Some place in there. It should be within. Should be within. Should be. Should be. I see it as the same circle. The same circle. Mm. So all Christians are in the kingdom. I guess I'm thinking of the ideal. You're thinking of the ideal. All true Christians. All true Christians are in. We have the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the Christians. (laughs) Very small outside. True Christians. Well, we could spend, have some fun with this for a while, but perhaps something like this. And don't argue the percentage inside, outside, please. Um, The point being that not all Christians exhibit qualities in the kingdom. That might be our goal, but uh, we have to admit. So where would you draw the Seventh-day Adventist church circle? Hmm. Hmm? <laughs> what was that funny? A little more outside. A little, yeah. <laughs> a little less inside. A little less inside, not all of the Christian circle. So... We could intersect it with the Christian circle. Um, let's put it there. So this is this, and this could intersect with the Christian circle. Let's don't get too picky on that. Okay. 
My obvious next question is where does the Muslim start calling? Oh, uh, so you need to put little arrows as to, <coughs> to the center or coming away. The arrows. <laughs> where does the Muslim start calling? I've had some do that in audiences when I do this. I've also had people actually come up, because usually in seminars, you know, I'll say, okay, come up and, and draw the circle. And I've had people draw the Christian circle the same as this circle. And then and we talk about it, and they say, oh, yeah, we understand what you're saying. So here, here. Where is the Muslim circle? You're talking in terms of population? Of number of we're people. talking about faith. We're talking about size of the circle. No, we're not talking about demographics. We're talking about uh, spiritual issues. I mean, I similar circles to the Christian one. Like similar to the Christian one. But not in, not maybe not in that one, but another one. In so somewhere here, uh-huh. but similar. What you're saying is there are Muslims who exhibit principles of the kingdom. That was a theme yesterday in our meeting in Pasadena. Mercy. Pardon? Mercy. In the kingdom? (coughs) Certainly. Very much would be there. What then is our mission? If this is the case, what is our mission in the Muslim world? The traditional understanding has been to take the Muslim either here or here. But if you have Muslims exhibiting or moving towards using centered set thinking, principles of the kingdom, What should be our mission? And here, here, here's the errors. We are to, Christ said, to go and make disciples of me. I would think uh, knowledge and acceptance of Christ would be a factor. I don't know. In which circle would you put that? What you just said, knowledge of Christ. Well, in the big one. It's in the kingdom circle. So, Instead of asking Muslims to come here or here, why not move in this direction? What what would be the difference, really, though, between the, the kingdom circle and the Christian circle? What's the difference? We're not talking about people's foibles. We're talking about qualities. Ideal right. qualities, right? Right. Yeah. Perhaps it'll become a little more clear as I hope in the next 20 minutes we'll move into uh, another, another way of looking at this. These represent certain denominational affiliations that carry certain baggage that we're going to talk about. These are spiritual qualities. In the Muslim's mind, Christianity does not represent this. You're asking him, if you move the Muslim to this circle, 
and, and by the way, in the Muslim's mind, this circle is inside. The SDA circle is inside the Christian circle. That's our identity. That's what we're focusing. We're beginning to move towards this question, who are we for today? In the Muslim's mind, we are Catholic. In the average Muslim, we're the same as a, as a Catholic. So, when you ask a Muslim to move into this circle, you are asking him, first of all, to eat pork. I have had a number of Muslims tell me stories of how when their friends became a Christian, or someone they knew became a Christian, they were forced to eat pork to prove that they were now Christians and not Muslims. Talk about families and thinking. Talk about mission as cargo. Um, moving into this circle is is basically subscribing to to all of the popular media um, values. Yeah. And, and one of the reactions of, of the conservative Muslim world against the West is because of the clash of values. Popular media that comes out of Hollywood and Bollywood and so forth. So, um, my my suggestion for us, so we can move on, uh, is that our focus ought to be moving Muslims into the kingdom, even if they exhibit some or are moving in that direction, move them to more centrally in the kingdom of God. Then we can look at more creative relationships with Seventh-day Adventists as Seventh-day Adventists. Now, last week's handout had had a, a section on who is a law also. Uh, do, do you have any burning questions on that? Uh, is that something we need to look at? Um, Could you give us a different synopsis? There, you have several slides, and I, I'll leave those for you to look at uh, from last week's handout. Um, let me just recall a couple of the, the quotations and, and mention a few points. First of all, the name Allah was used by Christians before Muslims. The Syriac language, the, er, the early church, Syriac was um, uh, relative of Aramaic. The word for God is Allah, or similar. It's, it's pronounced just a little differently, but um, it's the same word. So Islam did not originate the word Allah okay, in the Arabic language. Secondly, the, 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 the Arabic Bible that Christians use uses the word Allah for God. So those that are concerned about who Allah is or that we even shouldn't use the name Allah, and I've, I've encountered people, um, I could name names that you might recognize, who have said, I will never use the name Allah, uh, in an evangelistic brochure that was to be published uh, for an evangelistic series in the country where Muslims might attend, uh, the lead evangelist said, uh, when he saw the word Allah in the brochure, uh, reacted and said, well, I'm not going to print that brochure. When his translator insisted on using the word Allah for translating God, G-O-D, uh, he fired his translator and got someone else who would uh, work around that. Uh, 
that kind of thinking, you better first of all work with people like Nabil here and tell him that he's been worshiping uh, the moon god or, or a pagan god for, for all of his life, uh, all of Christianity for the last 2,000 years uh, in the Arab world has been worshiping the wrong god because Allah is, is, is the word that's used. So, you know, when you, when you understand these things, it, it, it becomes ridiculous, uh, the, the, the contention. Now, there is a valid uh, criticism um, to some degree that the qualities that are emphasized in Islam may be different from the qualities that we understand about God. And, of course, the issue of the Trinitarian God is always brought up. But let me just read a couple of the quotations to refresh our memory, and then we'll move on. All of these peoples, the various peoples, uh, Christians, Muslims, use the same word, G-O-D, God, to refer to the same entity. Yet they have different concepts of who God is. Okay? So let's, let's understand, there may be different concepts of, of, about God. The significance is this, one cannot change a person's concept of God merely by changing the name he uses for God. In other words, those who insist, no, I can't use the word Allah, let's use a different word. You don't change people's concepts of God by giving them a different word, because that's a word that they have used about God uh, in their culture and in their language for some time. Any name that denotes God for someone will evoke that person's concept of God. What is required for recon- re- sorry, what is required for reconceptualization is new information about God that will change the concept itself. And that is the task of the Bible. If if we have differences in our understanding of God, the Muslim versus biblical understanding. It is our task and mission to help to increase that understanding or complete that understanding or develop that understanding in the other person uh, about God rather than argue, well, no, I can't. Uh, Allah is a different God. You see, just because there's a different concept of, of the characteristics of, of, of God. Perhaps that's enough on that unless there's some particular questions. You seem yes. to me like that, that the answer to that question is the presentation of Jesus and that's the difference. So what what is the Muslim concept of Jesus? I think he's a prophet but not I mean so it seems like that is a challenge and the presentation the, the difference understanding of God would be based on the life of Jesus. And it seems to me like that maybe what the, the, one of the you know, obviously the main difference well, one of the challenges certainly is our discussion of Jesus, but that is not, therefore, reason to say the God that you worship is not the God I worship. Right. As in the Quran, the Allah is the Creator God; He's the God of Abraham. Um, so, yeah. But yeah, and that's where the mission task comes into play. That is, that is our. Uh, Introduction of, of the Muslim to the kingdom includes an understanding of God's intervention in history uh, through the life of Jesus, the incarnation. Okay, let's at least take the last 15 minutes to, to look at uh, the handout that you have for today.
five important <coughs> questions, and I had hoped to get through two. We will be lucky to even touch on the first one today. So next Sabbath, uh, we will look at the second one. We may not even get into three, four, and five until I'm back in the first week of May. Um, but these are five questions that I have sort of <coughs> summarized the missional task around. Um, and I think they are key to not only our interaction with Islam, they are key to our interaction with any other faith tradition. And the first question is, who are we? And I, from my interaction through the years and much of my interaction has been with, with Adventist communities around the world, I'm trying to help them understand Islam in a way that can help them build relationships. I find that there's not a clarity of who we are. And you may, you may challenge that, but I'm talking about a, a deeper understanding of our role in the end time and, 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 and what we are about. And, and one, is, one example is the common reaction, and, and, and just test yourself on this. When you hear about a latest terrorist act that may be linked to someone who is Muslim, what is your reaction? What is your initial reaction? Um, are, you, are you immediately concerned about the salvation of a Muslim, or are you concerned about preserving your American way of life? And I, I, I gave a presentation in, in a conference in Australia a couple of years ago. I titled it, Patriots or Saints? And I see too many of us responding to the news and to which is often simply about the sensational, of course, uh, and the, the, the terrorist activities. Uh, and it, it's interesting to me, by the way, how we've, we've now, we now have Islamic terrorism, even though Christians also have been involved in terrorism. But we haven't labeled any terrorism as Christian terrorism. Um, um, With Christian terrorism, we talk. Have you heard about Bosnia? Hmm? Have you heard about Bosnia, Herzegovina? And, and who's in, who lives in those regions? Muslims. So where are we talking about Christian? Ethnic Here. cleansing by Serbian Christians of Bosnia. I think the history is a little... Huh? Ethnic cleansing didn't come first from uh, a Serb... It, it came from a journalist talking about what would happen to the Serbs should the Albanians just be given clear. Was there ethnic cleansing of Muslims? by Serbian Christians. Muslims would cite that, you see. And they will cite a number of other examples. Well, I think Bosnia is first, isn't that where they set up a country that on religious grounds where the others hadn't been, per se? Well, but, but the point is, was there ethnic cleansing of Bosnian Muslims by Serbian Christians? Uh, I think in any war, people were killed. Just as was there Serbian ethnic cleansing by the Albanians down in uh, other areas. Well, there may, it may have gone both so ways. I mean, but you see, the Muslim yeah. side is going to cite those examples. I mean, you're asking for examples. And if you were talking well, to a you're Muslim. Talking about, you're talking about the Americans, because you just mentioned about whether or not you're 
an American patriot versus a saint in time. There were two different patriots. Patriot is not only American. I'm, I'm talking about why Americans. You you brought up Christian terrorism. So I'm talking in context of your statement about it. are we Americans or are we saints in terms of how it's perceived. And I think I haven't, you know, until you give me an example of this Christian terrorism that our country has seen that is from our, you know, from the American perspective. Timothy McVeigh. I mean, there are, and he was pushing what Christian point of view. That's not the point, whether he professed to be a Christian or not. In the larger context, a Muslim looks at these things. You see, it's a Muslim who came to me and said, "You know, the Iraq War is a crusade against Islam." But your question was whether or not we, as Amer- you know, we here see things from America as an American <coughs> patriot versus a. Okay, let me. See, expand. I'm not speaking from the Muslim. Let me expand on that point and where I'm headed. I don't want to get involved in, 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 in some side issues here. The, the point I'm trying to make is that I think we react too often as a, as a patriot, a national patriot. And that could be American. I was in Australia when I, when I, when I presented that. Uh, it could be an Australian. It could be any particular country. My point being, do we react from our national identity or do we act from our heavenly identity? And I, I think, think we, we react from personal identity. What is your personal identity? Is it heaven's identity or God's identity? Are you God's child or are you a, a reacting? Is your, is your primary personal identity your national identity as an American or whatever other nationality you are? Or is your primary identity as God's child? That's, that's where I'm headed on this. You see... And I see too many Adventists reacting, first of all, as, their prim- as if their primary identity were their nationalistic identity, whatever nationalistic, whatever nation that would be. And my point being that I think we have a higher calling than that. I think we ought to be reacting to current news, um, to the Islamic world, not defending my freedoms as an American and my rights as an American, but reacting from the standpoint of what is my role as God's child at the end of time in relation to these Muslim people and the Muslim down the street. You see? And, 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 and too often we react and, and when I presented this in Australia, two day, a day later uh, a prominent voice uh, about Islam in the Adventist circles stood up and said the greatest danger we have to fear is Islam taking over our freedoms and our way of life. Exactly the opposite of what I was trying to, to focus on. So I'm not talking in the air. I'm not talking fantasy. This is reality of how too many of our Adventists are reacting. So uh, my, my point being, we need to understand who we are. I'm not a typical American. I am a member of God's end-time people, and that's how I ought to react uh, to current news, to the Muslim down the street, uh, and, and, and not just Islam, but any other faith tradition. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, so I think maybe what he was getting at, he felt that you, you had done a shift in your comparison. Um, I think the proper comparison between an act, quote-unquote, of Islamic terrorism, it might be good to contrast that directly with the American invasion of Iraq, which I think a lot of us have become greatly um, unhappy with American foreign policy because what, what it seems is that we have a particular religion in our country and that's Christianity and that religion in a sense is hijacked by the political establishment and so we get very propagandistic couchings of what it is we're doing in the world and we tend to put it in a religious context, which is completely unfair to what we're actually doing in terms of American foreign policy. And so if, if as Americans we're reacting against so-called Islamic terrorism, we need to turn around and look at what it looked like to people in Iraq and elsewhere when the Americans decided to invade, which on a legal basis, to many of us, seem completely and totally unjustifiable. Okay, can we move on on this question, who are we? Okay. Uh, thank you for that clarification. I, uh, that's helpful. We as, as Seventh-day Adventists, and I've already laid it out there that I think we too often react from our nationalistic perspective. Um, what I have chosen now, what I think is important for us to, to, to look at briefly in a few minutes here, and I can hardly even get started on it, but I'm afraid we're going to leave it in the midst of, of a lot of questions. Uh, I'll have to wait till next week to clarify, I guess. We look at the Christian heritage, um, and uh, we sometimes forget to differentiate the Christian heritage. Early Christianity was defined by its spiritual power, by its changed lives, and uh, the church grew under persecution. Uh, the church grew under very difficult uh, circumstances in the first uh, two or three centuries. But in the 4th century, you have what we call the Christendom shift, which has been labeled as the Christendom shift by uh, Christian historians, or those looking at Christian mission history particularly, uh, with Constantine and, uh, in the 4th century and those uh, following. Uh, Christianity becomes now a socially acceptable and advantageous entity to join. Whereas before it was a persecuted entity, now it becomes advantageous to join the Christian church because now it is the official church by declaration of, of Constantine. Uh, church buildings replaced churches. And in fact, in 323, Constantine issued an edict in which house churches were actually outlawed. Uh, and his purpose was to... to uh, build churches that 
Christians would congregate in and more, more bring more people into the church was, was his stated idea. However, what happened during that period, and I'm just basically sketching some highlights, and that is the church and the state began to partner in coercing faith. By 380, you have Theodosius I uh, and uh, the bishop of Bishop Ambrose uh, uh, come uh, working together to begin to enforce orthodoxy in the year 380. And it's always been amazing to me how quickly the Christian Church shifted from a persecuted sect to a persecuting force. Uh, Monasticism had come into the church. Uh, that is, uh, you have probably one of the examples being Simon Stylites sitting up on top of the pillar up there in Syria, just out of Aleppo. Uh, as a result of the Platonic dualism understanding of, of human nature, had invaded the church, and uh, uh, so the the religion became less. Uh, less effective to the common person, whereas before it had changed lives, and that was the attractive thing about Christianity, was the changed lives. Uh, now it was this this thing that these uh, people who wanted to deny the body uh, were involved in and, uh, and so forth. Uh, it also became esoteric theological uh, that had no relation to life. Church councils, the early church councils, the first four in particular, um, Council of Nicaea, then you have the Council of Ephesus 431, Council of Chalcedon 451, uh, with theological con controversies over issues that had no relation to realities of life. Uh, excommunication and persecution and execution of heretics even became the norm. And this shift took place uh, within literally quite a short period of time. Uh, in describing this Christendom shift, I have been uh, I have this quote from uh, Alan Kreider. Uh, I have been describing a paradigm shift in Christian missions as it came to be coupled with violence. We have moved from Christianity defined by faith in Jesus Christ to Christendom defined by the effort to promote the Lordship of Christ over all of society by coercive means. We move from a Christianity that spreads because, because it is attractive to a Christianity that spreads because it is advantageous and finally because it is compulsory. And this movement changes mission fundamentally. It represents a paradigm shift, a Christendom shift, that I have argued represents a tragic distortion of the Missio Dei. Going on and about the Christian heritage, the Eastern Church, which has commonly been called the Nestorian Church, was excommunicated officially and finally at the Council of Chalcedon in 451 over a fine detail issue on the nature of Christ. Uh, the accusations were that Nestorius had actually denied the divinity of Christ. Uh, he writes that he in no way ever denied the divinity of Christ. It was, a, it was a difference. It was political also, but also a fine difference over whether Christ had one nature or two natures uh, and so forth. Then you have the Inquisitions. 
You have the Crusades, starting with Pope Urban uh, proclaiming the Crusades. It started in 1095. The first Crusade was 1099, uh, actually when it actually took over Jerusalem. And in that first Crusade, they slaughtered non-combatants, women, children, without discrimination. Muslims remember this history. If I can just go over a couple minutes to kind of at least come to a, a stopping point here. The memory of the Crusades lingers in the Middle East and colors Muslim perceptions of Europe. It is the memory of an aggressive, backward, and religiously fanatic Europe. This is the Muslim perception of the Crusades. This historical memory will be reinforced in the 19th and 20th centuries as imperial Europeans once again arrived to subjugate and colonize territories in the Middle East. Unfortunately, this legacy of bitterness is overlooked by most Europeans when thinking of the Crusades. And I would say we as Seventh-day Adventists and are looking back at our heritage have forgotten this sometimes too much as well. Um, what, I, what I'm... And, and just continuing on and then, then we'll wrap it up here in a minute. They, the Crusades, caused Muslims great offense and inflicted on them profound and lasting psychological scars. Those who support the present demonization of Islam in the Western media would thus do well to bear in mind this history of psychological damage and religious front. Many Muslims today still remember with pain, centuries later though it may be, what was done in the name of the cross. I mentioned it was, it was a Bangladeshi man who said to me the Iraq war is a crusade against Islam. I said, how is that? And he said, well, you have a battleship named Corpus Christi. I said, so? That didn't even dawn on me when he said it. And he said, well, you don't even know what name what Corpus Christi means? And then it suddenly dawned on me, Corpus Christi, the body of Christ. To him, that was evidence that uh, it was a, a crusade against Islam. So perhaps we ought to stop, uh, stop there. We're over time. Uh, we'll pick it up from here. What I'm trying, let me just summarize what I'm trying moving towards here, and that is we as Seventh-day Adventists need, to, need to, to really understand who we are in reference to the rest of Christianity as well as in the reference to Islam uh, as God's end-time people. And uh, that's where I'm headed with this. We sometimes assume ourselves as Christians not realizing the Christian baggage and this Christendom baggage that comes along with that. And in our interface with the Muslim world, when we simply move with the Christian identity, we carry with us unwittingly a whole lot of baggage that is embodied in what I'm just talking about here now. Because they know that history. They remember that history. And, and we are associated with all of that in our, in our, if we simply are identified as a Christian institution. And so we want to explore that a little more uh, and then move on from there with the question of who are they also, our attitudes about Islam um, and uh, how we think of them, uh, how, how, how God thinks of them, and how as saints we have to think of them instead of as patriots. Thank you, and thank you for the discussion. Uh, that helps to sharpen me as well. Uh, we hope to see you next week.